The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Cheryl Jones, and I'm happy to have you with me today. I hope you'll be in touch with comments, questions, or guest suggestions. Some of the best guest suggestions come from the listeners. And you can reach me on social media or by email. All the links to all those ways to reach me are on the Good Grief page at Voice America. Today I'm talking with Marcy Rosen Bernstein. Marcy is a social worker who's been working in hospice in New York City since 2006. She started her journey as a hospice volunteer. After her husband died of multiple myeloma, she went back to school at the age of 60 to earn an MSW at Fordham University. Marcy is also a graduate of the End of Life Practitioners Program of the Meta Institute, Sausalito, California. As a psychosocial counselor, she served thousands of patients and families. Her expertise and compassion helped to normalize and bring resolution to the end-of-life challenges of her patients and their loved ones. Marcy created endoflifewisdom.org to assist people navigating the challenges presented at the end of life. After years of answering the questions of patients, family, and friends, Marcy saw the need to extend her knowledge to others in need of -of end-of-life guidance through advice to the living about dying. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Very happy to have you. We're we're members of a club no one would want to belong to. Our spouses both died of multiple myeloma. Um, and I, I don't know, I didn't quite absorb that when we first met. And then when I got your biography, I reabsorbed it. So I feel some commonality with you um, in terms of that as well. Yeah, as as with other losses, it is a shorter conversation because we've both been there in terms of not having to speak paragraphs for the other one to understand what that journey was like. Absolutely, that particular, and I know even, uh, I don't know when you're, when did your husband die? What year? He was diagnosed in 98. And he died in 2002. And when he was diagnosed, the lifespan was three to five years. It was right in the middle. We have since learned that with, with most uh, many cancers, there are different forms and varieties of it. Um, some people have smoldering myeloma, and they can live. I know someone that's lived over 20 years with it. We were not that lucky. My wife died in 1995, and her her prognosis when she was diagnosed eight years before that was six months to a year. So I, I also think that um, there are some better treatments than there were, perhaps, um, 
or at least um, things that help people to extend life somewhat. It seems to be changing over the years because I do know several people who've lived longer. Um, but it is, it's a brutal illness, isn't it? it? It truly is. And, um, you know, with the statistics, they are always based on past history. Mm-hmm. So that would have been the lifespan, you know, a few years ago. And this is true for all diseases. But today, no one knows what that's going to be. But typically, it's longer. Typically, so, it's longer. And and we also, uh, I have a son-in-law in cancer research. Things change so fast. It's kind of dizzying, actually. Um, not always in the, the treatments take longer to change, but the knowledge changes pretty quickly. So. It, it does. We actually lived in Greenwich, Connecticut, and our main doctor was Brian Dory, who's in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And he is a founder of the International Myeloma Foundation. And he told us that when chemotherapy is considered 10% effective, it means that it's 100% effective for 10% of the people. And that now they're able to pinpoint what, you know, what specific variety of a cancer that people have so that hopefully chemotherapy will be more, um, it'll be more effective. But the lessons of losing a spouse and, um, and, and particularly now looking back on it, there were so many lessons, Cheryl. It was, as peculiar as this may sound, it was a blessing for myself um, because I don't think I would be where I am today had I not gone through that and had to get not only in touch with myself, but to understand that, um, that first of all, that love certainly survives death, mm-hmm. and also that among the things, aside from losing my beloved husband, I also lost an identity. Mm. And I lost that identity of Mrs. Elliot Bernstein. And I didn't mm-hmm. realize that for a little bit. And all that that involved, my husband was a news producer. And so there was a whole world at CBS News. And I realized that I had to fill that void myself. That's so familiar to me, of course, and and actually to um, many people I interview on the show because we're here to talk about transformation through loss, not just loss. And um, we do, I I don't believe everyone um, finds the kind of um, growth and change that you and I share, but I do believe a lot of people do, that if we... It, that if we really allow ourselves to grieve, we do change. And you're you're talking about a whole change of identity. That's also very familiar to me. My gosh, I never would have done this radio show, as I've mentioned to my listeners before. Never ever um, before that experience. Not not this or any radio show. Uh, just too too public for the person that I was. Well, and my background was in commercial real estate in the national market. I mean, and 
we, we used to kid around saying, oh, there were many more losses of deals than in dealing in hospice. But it was a very <laughs> different world. <laughs> a completely and, different kind of, kind of, of loss. loss huh? <laughs> yes. But, yes. you know, people can, can uh, I, don't, I don't limit um, my conception of what, uh, you know, what people can learn to any particular kind of loss. It depends how we struggle with it, how it affects us, what we, what what meaning we come to make, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I never, if someone had told me five years before that I would be a hospice social worker and that I would find great peace at the bedside, I w- I would really think that they were totally off base. I mean, it would be hilarious. The thought of it. And, and, so you surprised and, a lot of your friends, huh? <laughs> and oh, not to mention family. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I have um, to tell you that a dear friend of mine who's a life coach um, in New York, Penny Cohn, gave me great advice um, after my husband died. Well, when he was going through treatment, I had told my, my business partner um, at the Compass Financial Group that I just couldn't do it anymore because when I was at work, my head and heart were at home. And when I was home, my head was at work and I was, it was too schizophrenic of a life for me. So I, I gave up work to spend those last months with my husband, not necessarily knowing it was the last months. Um, and after he died, um, Penny Cohn had said to me, because I was at a crossroads of what to do, and she gave me great advice. She said, look backwards on your life. Who were you? What did you do? How, what did you attract? And when I looked back, it became so clear that I was always the caregiver in the family that when my younger sister was born, I thought I had to be her mother. And we had a pretty good mother. When mm. my niece was sick, I was the one that showed up. When my, you know, I, I, my mother, my father, I was it. And so I had started volunteering in hospice a few years before. And um, and when was I... Was your husband looked, sick then, or did you... He had been diagnosed, but that wasn't the genesis of it. It was very interesting. I had, um, I had studied Reiki. I had gone to the second level, level of Reiki, hands-on healing. And when my mother-in-law was dying in the hospital, I was able to comfort her. I was able mm-hmm. to sit with her. I was able to be present with her, do Reiki with her. And, um, and, it, and it surprised me. And so after she died, I, I kind of said, oh, if I can do this, I have to do this. So I volunteered in hospice. And it was incredibly rewarding to me. So rewarding that um, part of this looking backwards, I saw that that my volunteering at hospice had been so satisfying and touched something in my soul and something that needed to be healed in me. And so I took a huge leap of faith and enrolled in school and got my master's. And 
I, I do remember getting a B minus on my first paper and coming back from school, and both my daughters were in college at the time, and they looked at me and they said, "Well, Mom, did you do the best you could?" <laughs> <laughs> That is a great story. (laughs) At which point I realized what cold comfort that really is to say to a child. (laughs) And yet, and yet, the place you need to ultimately get to, don't you? But obviously you didn't stop at that. You kept going. And did that... Did that intersect, Marcy, with your husband's illness? Were you in school while he was ill, or was that after? Oh, no, oh, no this was after he died, after he so, died, because... So there was an inkling of this unrealized place in you that you were already investigating, and then it really took hold after he died. It, well, it became your direction. It, it became my direction because I had the time and space to explore something. Mm-hmm. You no, know, working, which I enjoyed, and um, so, you know, I was in a certain mode, and you keep going until until that, you know, irritant, it's like the, the oyster, and the irritant gets in the shell, and the oyster struggles and struggles and struggles, and finally there's a pearl that, that emerges. Well, this was the irritant. You know, mm-hmm. of, okay, I have to do something. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? And, um, and it, was, it was truly a gift that I was able to go back to school and do work that I was so passionate about. You know, I, th- I, I talk to a lot of people who haven't had, uh, everybody's had losses, but they haven't had major, profound, life-changing loss. And they can't understand being drawn to working with uh, illness and death, Um, you know, period, let alone after you've experienced that. They imagine they'd want to run as far away as possible. But I find that really isn't, isn't true by and large. And, and we're two good examples of that, that we actually have have um, gone in the direction of working more and more with um, the end of life because of our experiences losing our spouses, wouldn't you say? Definitely. It, in my case, I had started volunteering before, unrelated to his terminal diagnosis. It was really my mother-in-law um, yeah. seeing that I could do the work. And... Um, because many people say, oh, you, you went into hospice because of your husband. And it's, not, it's really not true. It's, it, the truth is that I had, I had time to spend with myself and to see who I was and what my strengths were and in what way I could serve. And, and at the bedside is the place that I can serve, being with families is a place that I am able to normalize a crazy, crazy situation of somebody leaving. I also um, hear with a lot of people, and I'm curious whether it's true for you, um, 
for me anyway, I, I developed a great deal more courage, kind of having faced the worst. I kind of go headlong. And once I know there's something that's really calling to me, I'm not as hesitant as I might have been before. Is there any of that for you? Uh, there, there is, and part of that is connected to my my work in hospice and going to the Meta Institute. Because Frank Ostenstecki, who was the founder of the Meta Institute, would always say, "Pay attention to what shows up, and mm. accept everything. Push away nothing." It's a part of the precepts, you know, by which he lives his life. And that awareness was uh, guides me more than anything. That there is a fearlessness in that um, I am open to the possibilities, as opposed to immediately saying, "Oh no, no, that's not going to work." Yeah. It's time for a first break. I just want to mention that Frank Ostaseski was on my show, and um, listeners out there, you could hear that interview by just searching it at my host page. He'll he'll pop right up. Uh, very, it was very good talking with him. So, listeners, in these few minutes between, uh, take a few minutes to go to my host page. Connect with me. There's an email link to my website. You can find out more about me there. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+. I have a Pinterest page of all my guests and other resources. And to find Marcy Bernstein, go to endoflifewisdom.org. Back after the break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. 
Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. I've been talking with Marcy Rosen Bernstein, who offers guidance free of charge to families facing the end of life at endoflifewisdom.org. And we were talking before the break of how um, the experience of losing your husband, of feeling drawn to hospice work, and of going to the Meta Institute all sort of... uh, I would say kind of came together in your um, starting a career at 60, uh, getting your um, master's in social work and working in hospice. So that's, um, you know, I I have a few friends. One of my best friends actually became a chaplain in her 50s. I've started to do this radio show in my 60s. It's such a, a precious time of kind of new beginnings Some. Sometimes, and it sounds as if that was true for you too. Yes, yes, absolutely. I am. Um, I have more faith in me. I see much more potential in the world. I am aware of my own mortality, and I am at peace with it. I, I think, like many people, I um, I have found most people are more afraid of dying than of the actual death itself. And I'm, I'm open to, as Frank says, whatever shows up. So, so far, so good. But once I started on this journey, it, it was nonstop. And once I retired from work, I started endoflifewisdom.org because I wanted to continue to serve and be able to help people. You know, when people are grieving or faced with with end-of-life challenges, often family members do not have the best advice. They are Mm -hmm. well-intentioned, but they cannot be objective, and they're also bringing their own history to the table. And so... And and the reason I started Advice to the Living About Dying is from all the phone calls that I would get, my colleagues would get, from friends and family saying, oh, my God, my aunt has dementia, my uncle's in denial. What do I do? You know because you work in hospice. You know, when is the time for hospice? How do you talk about? Um, And so I really saw there was a need for it. And also, you you had. I'm assuming you you said you sat at thousands of bedsides. Um, that teaches you so much about the range of experiences. I would imagine. Um, I tend to meet people who are sort of uh, maybe a little open to these ideas to start out with because they're coming to a support group or they're you know. But um, I know that hospice is not. Not always people who know what it is. They just want the services. Yes? Oh, absolutely. What did those years and thousands of bedsides have to teach you about that variety, I guess, um, the different ways that people face that time in their lives and, and that loved ones face the end of life? You know, I was very blessed. Um, that so many people let me in and would share with me what they were going through. 
and what the family dynamic was and what their wishes or their parents' wishes or loved ones' wishes were. And there seemed to be a real commonality. If I have to find one thing, it was that people wanted to do the right thing. And uh. they just didn't... You know what? You understand that, that they, they, they wanted to do what was right for the person, and they didn't know what that was. And they had many concerns about that. You know, how, what do you say? How do you show up? Um, am, I, am I making the right decision for them? Am I able to be present with them? Um, that was the one common thread. And the rest was... We all have families. We all have dysfunctional families. <laughs> we all. <laughs> there is I no mean, normal. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. What is a functional family? I think all the dysfunction is actually the functional family because that's where our challenges are. So I, I found that, that, that there was anxiety on people's part about what to do. And the truth is, at the end of the day, it's just a matter of showing up mm-hmm. and, and being able to clear all of the history and all of the monkey brain that goes on before one walks into the room so that one walks in as a blank slate and can be present with whatever is happening in that room. And sometimes it's, it's to sit quietly and hold someone's hand. And sometimes it is to listen. And I remember working and we would report at team meetings and people would say, oh, I just listened. And we'd say, wow, just listened. That's the most healing. You know, we can't cure our loved ones, but we sure can heal them. Well, I think that's an occupational hazard sometimes, too. I've been running a continuing education program uh, at the Women's Cancer Resource Center out here on cancer and illness competency. And Mm. what I've noticed in preparing each month for whatever the subject is, is that the heart of it for me is always listening. Uh, No matter what we're talking about, you know, uh, end-of-life care, helping caregivers, whatever it is, that's just so basic, and and yet we all uh, have the possibility of imagining we should be doing something so much, so much fancier, I guess. <laughs> or, you know. Great word. <laughs> and yet, that's that's what really makes a difference uh, so deeply to all of us. Uh, from my view, is that what you find too? Yes. And I know that Rachel Naomi Remen was on your program, and you know, her description of it as generous listening is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And that's and the, really the, what it is. The um, post-traumatic growth people call it expert companionship, which I mm. which I like. Uh, that that our you know our thoughts, our training, having 
had these experiences and teachings matters, but really it's the companionship. <laughs> it's the yeah. being, being with a person that um, truly has an impact on them um, at the end of it. And it's a hard road to travel with somebody and to mm-hmm. take someone's hand or allow or for them to take your hand to go down that road with them and accompany them in their their last phase of life well not not um accidentally i think part of why it's so difficult is that we're often very blocked off from even thinking uh even thinking Obviously, people think about death usually in a fearful way, but actually thinking it through, <laughs> coming to terms is something we are not encouraged by and large to do. And so I, I imagine that hospice social workers in particular, and maybe chaplains as well, um, encounter a lot of people who are trying to um, take a crash course or, or kind of catch up quickly with with that whole part of living, having maybe not thought of it that much before. Well, I, you know, in, in the United States, we, we are not losers. We are winners. And grief is loss. Someone dying is a loss. And we don't like it, and we don't talk about it. Mm. Um, Ruth Chass, the cartoonist, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, I just finished reading a wonderful book she wrote and cartooned called Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? I just was in the bookstore looking at that book. I have to have her on the show. We haven't made contact yet, but yes. Oh, it's it's amazing. Do if you can. Do if you can because for her whole life, her parents were doom and gloom, but there was never a conversation about death because you're going to invite the Grim Reaper into uh. the house. How could you? Mm. How could you? And it's beautifully written, and in, in a lot of it, most of it's in her cartoony form, and it's wonderful. It's just wonderful about her her journey, too, of wanting to be... She she did an illustration of the good daughter and the, the goofiest daughter. And the good daughter, of course, said, of course my parents could live with me and I'll take care of them. And the other one is like, I am so scared. I don't want them living with me. Just, <laughs> not yeah, those I'll, people. I'll confess that I was, part of me was a little relieved that my mother didn't want that. That she mm-hmm. she was really committed to not living with her children. <laughs> Because it is, it. I wasn't scared of being with her death, but um, trying to live with her might have been difficult. You know? Yes, <laughs> it's it's unnatural at some point to be to be living in the family, and it's certainly here because the first moment we get out of the house, for sure. And that's I, what I we do, do. I do. I was uh, just saying on the show last week. Um, I, I interviewed Katie Butler last week. Um, she's big in uh, her book. Her book, "Knocking on Heaven's Door," is quite beautiful about end of life. But I, it made me think of my dad's family, where his grandmother uh, lived with them for years, bedridden. You know, mm. the, the model was just so, so, so different on how people 
die and and what's expected of families and um I don't believe that was unusual at the time uh whereas now it's much more uncommon than than it was back then I believe I I agree with you there was a time in this country where families lived in a community and within that community were their aunts and uncles and cousins and then we became more mobile my my mom was born in Pittsburgh she moved to New York to marry my dad my dad was born in Brooklyn and the two of them were moving on up and moved to Westchester County in New York um that was you know that was a big part of the times and it certainly continued now because families are in in California and in Australia and in you know wherever um and they're not within the community so they you don't you're not exposed to people aging in place you're not exposed to having your elderly uncle who drools and spits at the table present we've mm-hmm. we've, we've kind of sanitized it absolutely and and um i of course there's also the the other aspect where i have many many clients who are trying to be there for their parents who live uh, a continent away you know there's there's also that that um, there's still um, a deep desire on the part of many people to to assist in that process, but it's very hard to do when geographically we're so spread out. Oh, it's it's really challenging for people, and also we all want our autonomy, and so the parents themselves want their autonomy. None of us want to live with our kids. None of right. us want to have our kids take it, not in that point, but have our kids taking care of us. And there is always one in, in the family. There is always, has that been your experience? There's one caregiver in a family. There could be 12 siblings. It It seems as if one person is more prepared or inclined but what I'm also uh, thinking about a lot is, um, and maybe this is because I'm um, part of the LGBT community, so many people in my age group do not have children. Mm-hmm. And so their their experience of end of life is, is going to be quite different. I don't know what it'll look like, but it'll be you know, different than than people for whom there is one, at least one kid who's, you know, who shows up for that process, which makes it so much more familial. In some ways. And then there's also the pain of the fact that none of the five kids show up, which happens. For sure. It's no guarantee. There's no <laughs> just, guarantee. Just the first people I, I actually, to ask. <laughs> I actually have a friend who is gay and his dad is dying and they were estranged for many years. I mean, he was, once he came out, he was kicked out of the house. And now he is caring for his father in the most loving, compassionate way. Over the years, they had reconciled. And I think there's that other piece, too, of with, of with family and parents of, of coming together, regardless of whether you're part of the LGBT community or not, of maybe having not met expectations. 
and uh, that's, wanting that's not to an, do that. That's a pretty common story. And let's pick that up when we come back from our second break, because um, I, I certainly, it, you know, it's not limited to my community. There are particular things, for instance, the rejection you're talking about and then trying to heal that. But it's um, an issue in general. Who's there for you? Who's not there for you? How are they there for you? And how do you go through it together and, and come to healing places? So let's let's pick that up after the break. And while we're on that break, uh, listeners, you can make contact with me on Facebook, like the page, so you'll see... Uh, the guests and other things I put up there, or Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, everything's at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Let's have a conversation. I, I love hearing from you. You can find Marcy Bernstein at endoflifewisdom.org. Back soon. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. Marcy Rosenbernstein and I have been talking about the wisdom she offers to those facing the end of their lives and their families at endoflifewisdom.org. And before the break, we were talking about, um, well, how would, I, how would I sum it up? We were talking about ruptures in families that sometimes can find some healing at the end of life. We were talking about who uh, shows up for people in their dying process, which can sometimes be surprising and sometimes makes sense once once I think about it, including many friends I have in my particular community, the LGBT community, who've experienced a lot of rejection from their families but are the ones that do end up taking care 
uh, which is, I, I hope somebody studies that or writes about it. I'm not a researcher, so that wouldn't be me, but I, I have been writing about it some, um, just, you know, uh, and I, and I think that can be translated into other kinds of family disruptions that sometimes find some healing in, in the end of life. I, I agree with you. And since we're on the subject, and I know you have many people that listen, do, you, do your listeners have living wills? Have they filled out a pulse form? Do their loved ones know what they want to do? Because the end of the day and the end of one's life, it's not about what the caregiver wants. The caregiver is honoring their loved one's wishes. So I just had to put in that little commercial announcement um, because I have seen families blown apart over this. I had one absolutely. Woman, she yeah, was go 97, ahead. 97 years old, alert and oriented, in a nursing home, on hospice with end-stage cancer. The son, who obviously was not a baby anymore, the mother was 97, wanted everything done for her because he knew that's what his mother would have wanted. And the sister, who was the healthcare proxy, said, oh, no, no, this is what mother wanted. She wanted to die peacefully. And the son was convinced that the daughter belonged to the Hemlock Society and that she just was going to off his poor poor, vibrant 97-year-old mother, (laughs) and it was quite awful, and I honestly do not think they ever spoke to each other after the funeral, and maybe not even at the funeral, and this all comes from not making one's wishes known to all parties, and it's really important. None of us want our children to have to be in the middle of that, or our loved ones just not knowing what end-of-life wishes are. And that's one thing we can, for the most part, control. But because it's not a pleasant conversation, people don't want to have it. Yeah, and just just a plug for, uh, you know, the resources out there. There are a lot of uh, assistive devices to help have that conversation. For instance, the Conversation Project, I interviewed the executive director uh they have their their website has um you know free downloads of ways to begin to think about those issues um, my gift of grace another, another couple of guests who's who made a uh, uh actually a game for having those conversations so there are resources out there i know those are only two of many many um and i agree we have to um, encourage ourselves to think about it first. What do we actually want? I put some thought into that recently and, and realized that, uh, you know, I'd always thought, you know, don't, um, no extreme measures, all of that. And then I started thinking about my kids and I thought they might need a little more time and that's okay. <laughs> you know? Right. So, so I kind of changed um, my own um, healthcare directive to include that, that um, if, I don't want extreme measures for myself, but if there's someone in my immediate family who's not quite ready, that's they can take that time. Uh, I know they'd get ready. It helps that I know them, you know, in that way. But, you know, it can be very nuanced. 
Yes? It can. I have to tell you just that I do have resources on my website for advanced directives, for advanced directives in 50 states so they can find their state and print it out um, for those that want it made easy for them. But I do want to tell you a story of this wonderful family that I took care of. The father was in his late 80s. He had had strokes, and um, he had appointed one of his three daughters as the health care proxy. And he said, do not resuscitate me. Nothing extreme. When it is my time, please let me go. Um, there were three sisters. One of them was not involved. One was, both of them, the other two that lived locally, were very involved with their dad and loved him dearly and took care of them. One of them um, really had a lot of difficulty with letting go. And when the time came and their father was, was actively dying, the health care proxy agreed for him to go to the hospital and for him to spend his last days hooked up to machines. And what she said to me, because talk about needing to listen, was, I know how much my father cared for my sister, for all of us, and that if this decision to let him go now without honoring my sister's wishes of him going to the hospital would really break her up. It would be too hard on her. And my father would not want my sister to suffer. And so even though it says no extraordinary means, I believe that I am honoring his wishes. That's exactly, like that? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about in a way. I'm, I'm remembering when my dad died. He fell. It was immediately obvious he was never coming back. But my mother was, and they had health care advance directives, um, so she could have just said unplug, but she was very concerned that everyone agree. And uh, it didn't take very long, you know, we're, we are a family that have talked about these things, and I work in the, you know, <laughs> we're kind of used to the subject a little bit, but, you know, she wanted the grandchildren to weigh in, she just wanted everyone to be in agreement. And um, I think that really does impact then how grief unfolds, uh, that no one had to, uh, no one disagreed that we all kind of said yes to that decision, even though to me it was very obvious uh, what, what was right to happen. Still, she didn't make us get there quicker. Well, and, and you raise a really good point, because what is more healing than being heard? And by allowing everybody to voice their opinions and what they thought and what their needs were, really gave people an you know, it really honored everybody that was involved and let them know that their opinion mattered. Yes, and they had told us the bare bones of their end-of-life wishes, but I do feel we would have benefited from a family conversation before that, 
you know, a deeper conversation, not just information, no extraordinary measures, or I want to be cremated, you know, there's, there's, there's more to say than that. And um, I'm trying to get my kids on board with having that conversation, but they're not quite ready yet. Um, Oh, Cheryl, I once, I I once made my kids fill out advanced directives in a diner. I thought they'd kill me. They were in their (laughs) twenties. Well, once you've seen, as you have, you know, what a difference it makes in terms of um, people kind of being on the same page together, not just the person who's dying. It's really also about the people who are trying to care for them, maybe even more about the people that are trying to care for them. So um, I I understand your – I haven't quite gotten to that point yet, but I do understand the impulse. (laughs) Yes. And uh, oh no, it was it was not pretty. <laughs> nobody nobody got breakfast till those those little. You know, you can get you can get like a wallet size card for your for your healthcare proxy and your living will until they were filled out. And and it it does, you know, it it does raise the question that we have the conversation and then a little bit about advanced directives. After we lose the first person, that, you know, that deep loss, then we realize, ooh, there's a lot more to that conversation than we, we knew. And it's like anything else. We're on the learning curve. Absolutely. And pe- people have to give themselves credit for doing, you know, I, I've actually stopped saying that I do what I did, do the best that I could. I now say I did what I was capable of doing. Mm. And that people, we do what we're capable of doing at the time. And for the next time, we know better. Absolutely. I can really see that in, in subsequent losses. My dad and my mom, just what I brought to that, my brother didn't, uh, didn't have to start out with because he hadn't had that experience. Mm. Um, the experience changes us. I don't want to let you get away without saying that to retire and then find a way to continue um, working, you know, uh, with all these issues seems very beautiful to me. And um, I, I hope you can spend just a couple of minutes before we go away talking about what you do on your website. Uh, obviously, we've talked some. You have a lot of resources there. You can be contacted there to um, answer questions. But I've spent some time on your website. I know there's more to it than that as well. Thank you for the opportunity because this really is my love, is being able to provide this service. As the centerpiece, as I said, is really the advice column, and um, more and more people are, are writing in with their concerns about what to do, what to say, uh, what their situations are, um, and so even for somebody that's facing end-of-life challenges themselves, to be able to see what other people's concerns are, I believe helps to normalize the situation and put in perspective their own concerns. Um, There also is a glossary of -of end-of-life terms, which I find is really helpful for people. In hospice, we throw around all sorts of letters, you know, DNR and COPD and Mm. um, things that we're very 
you know, they're common to us and we're comfortable with. And it, it's just a way of them, uh, people, to get a better handle on what resuscitation really is, what one thing or another um, is to, for them to be better educated. You know, what really is artificial nutrition and hygiene? Hydration. What what is a healthcare agent? What what's really capacity? What's considered you know what's considered life sustaining treatment intubation? Mm-hmm. So there there are a lot of a lot. I think that's very helpful for people. And then the resources. So that just by going to our, our website, they can go to other death and dying sites, advanced directives. There are many, many caregiver guides There's um, that, that they can go to because typically people are in a situation of caregiving at, at the same time that they're losing somebody. Um, how to talk about death and dying, diversity. Um, so it is just providing the tools for people to be able to make intelligent decisions and and i and i think also um there's a sense of not being alone if you see that other people have your questions yes you know they're uh having spent some time there i can imagine people who are a little panicked and not knowing where to go could feel a sense of company coming on your website i hope we are marcy we are out of time i guess that's going to have to be it for today but let's keep talking (laughs) and and let me thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for exposing so many people to to this topic and normalizing it and for having me on cheryl thank you you bet and listeners go to endoflifewisdom.org to find marcy and take advantage of those services next week i'll be talking with jordan grummet a physician whose book i am your doctor doctor and this is my humble opinion explores the boundaries of appropriate medical care this has been good grief with cheryl jones i look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation thank you so much for joining us for good grief please come back next wednesday at 5 p.m eastern time 2 p.m pacific time for another edition featuring your host cheryl jones on the voice america health and wellness channel have a meaningful week Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.